Okay, Tracy, you can go ahead and call the meeting to order. Um, hi, hello, this is the meeting of June 11th of the Audit and Compliance Committee. Call to order. Thank you. Can I get a roll call, please? Trustee Jensen. Here. Trustee Banerjee. Here. Trustee Shequin. Here. Trustee Peterson. Here. We have a quorum. Thank you. And um, I think our consent item is the first item. I'm trying to pull that up, but um, uh, the the minutes of the last meeting. Do I have a motion? Motion to approve the minutes of the last meeting. Second. All in favor? Aye. Thank you. And I actually don't have the agenda on my screen. If Mike, um, Mike, could you put the agenda up if you don't mind? It'll take me a minute to get it on here. Or someone who's looking at the agenda can let me know what the next item is. Uh, the next item would be discussion of the audit planning by Brian Connor with Moss Adams. Hi, Brian. Hey, Feel Tracy. free to begin the discussion of the item. I'll go ahead and get started. Rick, um, will you uh, drive for me there? Yep. You've got that pulled up. Excellent. Thanks. So you can flip forward to uh, the next slide here and click one more. So as you can see, we're on slide three. The, the actual slide members are on are, are faint on the middle left hand side of the slide. Uh, so for our agenda here this evening, this is really a, uh, as Tracy mentioned, the planning um, session for uh, the June 30th, 2020 audit for uh, Alameda uh, Health Systems uh, financial statements. So we'll talk a little bit about the team that we have, um, go through some communications with those charged uh, with governance, uh, which is the Audit and Compliance Committee, uh, and just spend a brief amount of time, uh, very brief on some accounting standards updates uh, so we should be able to roll through this uh, pretty concisely. We've got some other information in here that uh, uh, we won't need to uh, spend time on. So that's our agenda. And as, as is customary, we, we invite you to, to interject if you have questions, thoughts, comments on what we're discussing, or maybe more importantly, if, if we're missing anything that you want to hear about. So next slide, Rick. Um, your team uh, here, uh, my name is Brian Connor. I'll be the engagement partner again this year, I believe this is my third year uh, as engagement partner for the engagement. Uh, I was previously the concurring uh, partner. Um, Kate Jackson and Glenn Bunting uh, will also be involved. They were involved last year. We have John Finice, who's also on the line and, and will uh, be involved in this presentation as our engagement senior manager. John's been involved with uh, uh, the work for uh, a number of years, really focused on the single audit piece. Uh, but he'll be taking over for uh, Liz Lanier this year uh, for the financial statement audit piece as well. So he's familiar with the team, familiar uh, with the organization, et cetera. And uh, we have our, our senior, not pictured, Lisa Schick, uh, who will uh, be back. She's one of the seniors that we'll have on the engagement. Uh, so we have a pretty good uh, team that's familiar with the organization. I think we have some continuity. Uh, and so we're looking forward to a smooth and efficient engagement. Next slide, Rick. 
And one more, we'll go to slide six. So communication with those charged with governance, uh, this group here, uh, we have a number of things that we're gonna communicate uh, at the end of the engagement related to our findings uh, in the audit, some information about uh, the financial statements and the conduct of our engagement. Uh, right now, really, the, uh, we've got a couple of things to, to talk with you in the planning uh, phase. Most importantly is, is um, our uh, emphasis, the areas that, that we'll focus on in the audit uh, in the areas we believe to be higher risk. That's a really important part, and we'll do that in a few slides, but there's some additional required information that we'll communicate with you as well. Um, in, in addition to those two scheduled uh, discussions, um, our pledge to you is, as your independent auditors, uh, we're always uh, open to and uh, the hope that we have a continuing open dialogue uh, with the audit committee. So if there's anything that comes up that we find that you need to know uh, before we get to one of our scheduled discussions, we will re reach out and make sure that that conversation happens. And we uh, hope that you would do the same if you have any questions uh, and during the, the progress of the engagement. Next slide, Rick. So our responsibility under generally accepted auditing standards uh, you know, four boxes here, really the most, there's a couple of things I think that are really important. Um, one is that our responsibility is to an express an opinion on the organization's financial statements uh, under the concept of materiality. Uh, really, we're, we're opining whether those financial statements are fairly stated in all material respects. So uh, we take responsibility for the opinion page in the financial statements. The rest of the financial statements, uh, which are significant in Alameda's uh, case, is the responsibility of your management team, whether that's the uh, statements themselves, the line items, balances, numbers in the statements, the notes there too, supplementary information. That's the responsibility of your management team. So we'll be uh, testing and conducting our audit engagement under that concept that we're responsible for opining about whether the financial statements are fairly stated in all material respects. So that generally means that uh, we're doing our work on a test basis. There might be things of interest to those charged with governance that wouldn't fall within the scope of financial statement audit because of the concept of materiality uh, and risk assessment. We'll talk about materiality in a couple of slides. The other one relates to um, internal control. Uh, so, you know, we're responsible for understanding uh, the internal control of the organization uh, but we're not opining on the effectiveness of that internal control. Uh, so we'll be looking very closely at it if, as we have comments, uh, thoughts, uh, or we find deficiencies in your internal control that rise to a certain level. We'll certainly communicate uh, those to you, but our engagement's not conducted for the purpose of identifying uh, internal control deficiencies. Brian, this is Ken Kenny. Could I ask a question? Of course. Um, so with the internal control, is it, yeah, I thought it was also evaluating it, understanding, but also evaluating and assessing it. Is that part of? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's a good catch, Kinkini. So we um, understand uh, internal control to uh, primarily to plan our um, substantive procedures, uh, but we also evaluate the implementation of those controls. Uh, so uh, we go through and understand uh, the control structure and evaluate whether that control structure has been implemented. 
in many cases, will actually test your internal control uh, structure. And certainly in the revenue cycle and a few other cycles, uh, we'll do enough testing of detail activities uh, to gain some reliance on that. So there is quite a bit of work done in internal controls. That kind of evaluation um, and documentation of your internal controls, uh, documentation and implementation of that kind of doesn't rise to the level where we would do enough testing to be able to opine on the operating effectiveness like you might have in an audit for an SEC registrant done under uh, PCAOB standards where they're also opining on the internal control. We're not doing that much work, uh, but we are doing quite a bit of work. So we'll, we'll dig in uh, pretty closely to your internal control structure. Thank you. You bet, good question. Uh, next slide, please, Rick. Technical difficulties, guys. I think you're gonna get back in though. Everybody look away. This is an internal control feature we're testing right now. My system just timed out and is trying to boot me. We could follow along on our own, Ben. Yeah, would you like me to continue as that gets pulled up? So that was slide seven, uh, where Rick's system uh, timed out. The next slide uh, in the deck, slide eight, is titled Audit Process. And um, you know, it kind of shows a graphic of uh, how we conduct the audit, the various buckets of evidence that we're looking for. Uh, we just talked about internal controls, uh, the review of the information, as well as testing in, in, in certain cases. Uh, we also do analytical procedures. Uh, so we'll be looking at trends, comparisons, expect expectations, et cetera. These kind of procedures are often done with non-financial data. You know, we'll test uh, financial data in comparison to statistical uh, kind of measures. Uh, and that um, will get us appropriate audit evidence in, in many cases. And then of course, there's the classic substantive procedures where we're uh, confirming account balances, vouching to supporting documentation, looking at uh, charges, medical records, invoices, et cetera. So kind of the three of those um, connect to form uh, the basis for our opinion. And this is kind of shown linearly, uh, but it is iterative. We'll go uh, from substantive, and if we need to do more work, we might choose an analytic procedure. Uh, we may go back to controls, uh, but those are the basic processes that we're working through. And the next slide is materiality. I had mentioned this before. Uh, we choose a number that we determine to be uh, what a reasonable reader um, would believe to be material to the financial statements, what could impact uh, their read of the financial statements. Uh, we, it's, a, it's a qualitative assessment, but we do use certain quantitative factors to to find a range, a percentage of total assets, for example, percentage of uh, uh, total revenue, uh, those kinds of things. Uh, but we end up with uh, a single number. And, you know, of course, given um, the size of the organization, uh, that number would be, you know, reasonably high. So there, as I mentioned, there may be some things uh, that would be of interest uh, to you, but that would clearly not be material. Uh, to the financial statement. So we take that material, materiality number and for our scopes 
uh, for testing purposes, uh, those, those scopes in terms of what uh, falls into our samples, et cetera, is a small percentage of overall materiality. So we're, we are doing quite a bit of work. And um, next slide is 10, it's titled Significant Audit Areas. And I'll turn it over to John uh, to talk about those. It's really probably the most important part of our discussion here this evening. Hi, everyone. Uh, as Brian said, my name is John Finice. I'm a senior manager in our um, healthcare audit assurance practice. And I'm gonna run through these significant audit areas. Um, we've identified these as the significant audit areas but as Brian said, this is really the part where um, if you have additional questions or want to ask, you know, should we be focusing on a different section? This is where I'm going to be looking for that input. I do have two slides here. So um, if you happen to ask a question about something that's not on this slide, it may be on our next slide. But um, please feel free to jump in at any time. Uh, this first one here, internal controls over financial reporting. Brian's already spent quite a bit of time talking about the procedures that we do on, on internal controls, uh, getting an understanding of the internal controls of the organization for all areas, not just financial reporting. That includes the rev cycle, disbursements, payroll, um, debt, all those kinds of things that uh, are involved in internal controls. Uh, we want to make sure that we update that understanding every year. It's incredibly important to our audit process that we understand those controls and that we spend time testing the, uh, the implementation of those controls to, uh, to a level to place some assurance on those controls um, to help reduce procedures uh, and other areas of, of the audit. Valuation of net patient accounts receivable is an incredibly important area that we've identified. Um, what we're going to focus on here is after we update our understanding of the accounts receivable valuation model that management maintains, um, we'll be looking to see if you know management's made change to that model, if they're being consistent with their application of the model. Um, they tend to use a, a zero balance approach. They look at the, the, the claims that have fully adjudicated um, during the course of the year. And so we'll be looking to see if they're still using that model. We'll be looking back on last year's AR accounts receivable and the collections on that accounts receivable to see if management did a good job estimating the prior year accounts receivable, which gives us some good audit evidence that if they're maintaining the same model, that their accounts should be, uh, you know, relatively estimatable this year. Um, we do recognize that with the coronavirus and the changes in uh, revenue, the revenue volumes and things like that, we're going to see a significant change in what accounts receivable may look like. And so, um, I've been discussing that with Anne over the course of this week to begin that process. So we're not going to show up for final field work and do business as usual. We want to make sure that we've spent a good amount of time working with Anne and her team to really understand what's going on in accounts receivable this year, because we realize that it's not going to necessarily be status quo um, with the uh, with the way things are right now. John, this is Tracy Jensen. Um, could you, and I know that Kimberly Miranda's on as well, and Rick can weigh in on this. The, um, I guess, well, my first question is the significant audit areas are cha have changed or are changing. Um, and so I want to get to how that change is determined. And then um, with regard to the, the focus on a, accounts receivable, which I completely agree is a, is a, um, a, a good focus, that how, um, how are those 
standards and what are the, the, the objectives? How are those determined with, along with um, our CFO and with, with Rick? So I would, I would say that the significant audit areas are, you know, we take a holistic approach every year at looking at what we're going to determine to be a significant audit area. Um, it, I don't have last year's slide deck up in front of me at this point. So I'm, I'm uh, making an assumption that uh, accounts receivable has been a significant audit area. It may not have been on the, the presentation at this particular point in the slide deck, but it's an area that has a, it's certainly material to the financial statements as far as valuation goes. Um, that's really where we're looking at what we're including as a significant audit area is the, uh, the relative risk, um, whether that be risk to the organization or estimation risk or um, other types of risk that we want to spend some time on. Um, you'll notice that the next one that I'm going to talk about, the accounts receivable due from third-party payers, it's got a su substantial balance and there's a lot of moving parts inside that line item on your financial statements. For example, it contains, you know, Prime and, and IGT and, um, you know, the the the, key, the QIP and the EPP. Um, there's a lot of information in accounts receivables due from third parties, and there's a lot of different procedures that we're having to do there. And so, by just the nature of the different components inside that individual line item, it doesn't lend itself to one particular audit procedure. And so, in that case, that's why we've added that one as a significant audit area because it's not just uh, something standard that we can apply like we can with accounts receivable. You know, we apply a pretty consistent approach. Um, revenue is a, you know, a main component of the system. And so we expect accounts receivable, the system to be collecting that accounts receivable consistently and applying a, um, a, a good approach to valuing the amount of accounts receivable on the financial statements. And as um, as Brian mentioned earlier, that the uh, you're not evaluating our systems as much as you are evaluating the accuracy of the data collected. Correct. We do spend a little bit of time to understand the systems that the data is uh, kept in. Um, as as Brian said, we will be testing revenue controls um, because it is such a material component of your financial statements, and so we'll pull a sample of those um, the revenues that have been uh, recorded during the year. Um, right now, our team is actually in the field working on those controls. We've made a sample selection. We're waiting to get the support to see if all the controls that management said that they put in place to recognize accounts receivable, to record the transactions, um, are, all in this, are all meeting management's planned implementation. Great. Thank you. I'll, I'll look forward to learning if that's the case. And I, um, I think that this will be a great this will be definitely great information, those focus areas for, for the future. Thanks. Certainly. Um, so the third one here, valuation of accounts receivable due from third-party payers. I touched on what's in there, uh, IGT, cost report settlements, TWIP examples. Um, all of these third-party settlements are as a result of different programs that you have with government agencies and um, different contracts that don't lend themselves to one model to audit like accounts receivable. And so we're doing a lot of, as Brian referred to, substantive procedures. So a lot of tested details. We're looking at contracts. We're looking at the cash receipts and the payments that 
that translate between the IGTs. Um, we're looking at all the rates that management's using to estimate what's accounts receivable in these things to get comfortable with what management has put down as their, um, their receivable from third-party payers. Valuation of medical malpractice and other self-insured liabilities. As you know here, um, you're having actuarial studies done to determine the medical malpractice and the self-insured liabilities that you have recorded on your financial statements. So what we're going to do here is we're not going to reperform everything that the actuaries are doing. That's not our role. They're fantastic at doing that. But we'll make sure that all of the uh, assumptions that they're using are being consistently applied throughout their actuarial report. We'll take a look at it. We'll um, have some discussions with the actuaries to see if they recognize any bias that didn't show up in the in their reports. And then lastly, we'll make sure that all of their reports uh, reconcile with the disclosures that management reports in the financial statements to make sure that they've um, accurately recorded the amounts that the actuaries were recommending uh, be recognized as medical malpractice or other self-insured liabilities. And the last one on this slide is recognition of net paste and service revenue. Um, as I mentioned earlier with accounts receivable and also with internal controls, we are going to be testing the internal controls and the implementation of those controls for net patient service revenue so that we can place a little bit of a reliance on that. Um, net patient service revenue lends itself to uh, basically a two-pronged approach. We'll be doing a lot of analytical procedures here, looking at patient volume reports, reconciling those back to the systems, reviewing those reports being run so that we can get some comfort over the completeness of those reports, uh, applying them against uh, comparable periods, trends from the last couple of years. And then we'll also be doing cutoff procedures to make sure that management has recognized revenue in the appropriate period. And we don't have revenue in uh, fiscal year 2020 that should be in 2021. Any questions about the five that I've discussed on this slide? Can we roll forward to 11? Great. Thank you. So this first one here, compliance with intergovernmental and direct grant supplemental payment programs. We've already touched on that from the standpoint of the uh, accounts receivable from third-party payers. Maybe I put this one right below that or combine the two, but what, I'm, what we're referring to here is to make sure that all the components of the contracts are being recognized, and, and I've already kind of talked about that, so I'm going to keep moving if that's okay with you. Valuation of pension and other post-retirement benefits and liabilities. So again, here you're having actuaries perform procedures to determine the uh, valuation of the pension liabilities and the other post-retirement benefit liabilities. And again, like the medical um, medical claims liabilities and the other self-insured liabilities, we'll be performing similar procedures on these pension liabilities, um, reviewing the um, the projections, the assumptions that the actuaries are using, making sure that they're consistently consistently being applied and being represented in the actuaries report, and then tying out the actuaries report to the audited financial statement disclosures as it relates to these areas in, in your statements. The third one on this slide, compliance with grants and contracts subject to the uniform guidance. So as Brian mentioned, the last couple of years, I've been involved in the single audit portion of this audit, and Liz has been managing the financial statement audit. So I'm transitioning to participate in the, the whole audit. This particular area with uniform guidance, as you're aware, management produces a schedule of expenditures of federal awards, and we then per perform procedures or single audit procedures on those awards. 
Um, we'll be looking into the, the controls being managed over those single audits. And we'll be selecting the um, single audits for testing based on um, some different risk profiles, kind of like what we're doing here with the, the significant audit areas. Um, some of your programs have a requirement. They've got to be audited every year and determined to be a major program. Some programs aren't determined to be a major program, but are brand new. Um, you may be aware that there's a lot of federal government coming out right now, and some of those programs are brand new. Um, and so we're expecting that those programs will um, likely end up being a, a single audit component of your, your schedule of expenditures of federal awards. And so we'll have to evaluate if those programs have to be determined to be a major program or can be a minor program and rotated um, like some of the other minor programs that you have. John, are you talking about the funding that we're receiving through the um, COVID-19 emergency grants, the federal grants? Yes, I was. Some of those, some of those fundings will um, have a single audit component tied to them. And you won't know, this could be part of your audit, but you won't know which programs you'll be looking at until the federal guidelines are released. The, the federal guidelines are starting to get released right now. Um, we're aware that the, the Medicare advance is not likely going to end up with a, a component of single audit and the, uh, the, the payroll loan will not end up being a single audit. It'll be um, classified as a, a loan. Um, Brian, there was one that does have a single audit component yeah, it's likely, it's likely that the provider relief funds that you're getting uh, from the Department of Health and Human Services will be, um, Tracy, as you noted, there's, we, we're still waiting to find out for sure. Uh, certainly FEMA funding uh, that you have access to, if that's the case, that, that does qualify. So it will likely be the provider relief fund and uh, any FEMA funding if applicable. Thank you. The last two that I have here, um, we've, we've left on here simply because um, we wanted to make sure that we draw attention to the fact that um, there are component units inside of the Alameda Health System. The, the foundation is a discreetly presented unit, and then you have the Alameda Health Partners, which is a, a blended unit that's uh, consolidated with the health system. The last one here requires supplementary information. Um, we put this one on here because it is required by the Government Accounting Standards Board to uh, to have limited procedures put onto it. And so we've added it here to draw a little bit of distinction from Brian's earlier slide where he talked about um, our opinion. And in our opinion, there is a section for required supplementary information. And while we do limited procedures on the sections that are considered to be required supplementary information, um, those are the sections that are the um, management's discussion and analysis, the supplementary pension, and post-employment benefit information, as well as the schedule of proportionate share and net OPEB liabilities. All three of these per um, Government Accounting Standards Board are required supplementary information. The procedures that we do on these, we tie them out to the basic financial statements. We inquire with management about the consistency of the, the preparation of these schedules, but we don't express an opinion on these schedules. And so we put it on this section here to make sure that there's a distinction drawn for what we are gonna be opining on and what we don't opine on. Any questions about significant audit areas? Okay, great, next slide. 
Okay. So we're required to do procedures related to fraud. And while we're not required to uh, um, specifically search for fraud, we are required to perform procedures to uh, help identify fraud risks and um, respond to them if we do find them. And so those procedures that we have listed here are things like conducting brainstormings. Um, the natural rotation of you know bringing new team members onto the team helps with this brainstorm. We get fresh ideas coming into the group. Um, we take benefit from other audits that members have been on and, and things that they bring to that discussion. Uh, we conduct interviews of members of finance, members of governance outside of finance, and then other members of the organization who are outside of both those who might be able to provide us information or insight into potential risks related to fraud. Um, we do procedures during internal controls. And really what we're looking for is those unusual or unexpected um, relationships that we might identify during these inquiries and during our procedures that will cause us to spend additional procedures. And if we do identify fraud, as Brian mentioned, we'll obviously be communicating with you immediately to, to bring you into the loop on that. Next slide. So we have here just a simple uh, list, if you will, of what we're planning on delivering. Um, the audit report for the Consolidated Financial Statements of Alameda Health System, Public Hospital Authority, with the required supplementary information for the year ended June 30th, 2020. I've got parenthetically short form because we do do a long form, which adds on the schedule of expenditures of federal awards and all of the um, related reports that go into that. Similarly, there's a third report where we just issue the schedule of expenditures of federal awards and all those related reports tied to that in a separate standalone report that is um, split off from the long form and the short form. So in theory, you could take the short form and this third report and bolt them together and come up with the long form. The fourth bullet here is, is uh, as Brian mentioned, we'll be coming back at the end of the audit and delivering a report to those charged with governments, governance, um, communicating all those bullet points that Brian had listed out earlier in the slide deck. And then lastly, um, a report to management and the audit committee communicating internal control related matters identified during the audit. Are those first two reports, um, the reports that are required to be submitted for federal and state funding? So the, the, the long form is required to be submitted to the Federal Audit Clearinghouse. It contains both your financial statements as well as the schedule of federal awards and the reports that go with that, uh, the report to uniform guidance and the report on internal controls. Um, that's why that long form is produced, is to be able to submit that to the Federal Audit Clearinghouse. And then you often use the, the short form for other stakeholders, whether that's CMS in conjunction with the a cost report if they're looking for financial statements or um, debt holders, CLP holders uh, that might require a financial statement. Um, and, and I guess, how does our audit of Alameda Health System, is there any ties to the county's audit or the county's auditor? Yeah, the public so they, agency? yeah, so these financial statements uh, or the numbers there too will be incorporated into the county's CAFR. Uh, so we work with the county's auditors uh, to, you know, provide information uh, that 
that they may need. Uh, and then there's, you know, oftentimes at the end of this uh, engagement, a reconciliation process between uh, what the health system has uh, and what the county has. Uh, but these numbers will be part and parcel uh, for the enterprise fund of Alameda Health System right. within the county's capital. Thank you. And um, these will also include Alameda Health System, Alameda Health Partners, and the Alameda Health System Foundation, right? All three. That is correct. The consolidated financial statements will include all three. Okay. Thank you. Next slide. We wanted to bring your attention. The other things that we're doing um, related to the, the audit for Alameda Health System, um, we do assist management in drafting the consolidated statements. Management does prepare the statements and the management's discussion and analysis. They prepare the footnotes, but we're helping them to tune, fine tune those footnotes. If there's new um, pronouncements that are coming out that management would like some information and support on, we're helping them do that. But um, we wanted to bring your attention that we are participating in that effort to, to draft the, the consolidated financial statements and the footnotes. Um, we also assist management in the preparation of the oddity section of the data collection form um, that's filed with the Federal Audit Clearinghouse. So there's a, a long form that gets filled out that includes all the schedule of expenditures of federal awards and uh, all of the audit reports are summarized in this um, data collection form and we're assisting management in the preparation of that. Management still has to certify that everything on there is correct as well as the auditors do. And then lastly, uh, state and federal tax returns. And those are tax returns for the foundation. This next slide here is our timeline, our planned timeline. Um, we have had several discussions already with management, uh, primarily Anne, as we've been planning for the audit. Um, we're in the week of, of June 8th currently, and we are conducting inter interim audit procedures, which includes updating our understanding of internal controls and uh, testing for the implementation of those controls. Um, this next bullet is today. Uh, the week of August 10th, we split up the, the procedures for the audit, and we've done this a couple of years in a row. It's been very, very effective. We spend a lot of time the week of August 10th working on the supplemental revenue streams um, and also begin planning the single audit procedures. We found that's been very effective to carve out that particular week prior to actual field work and really focus on those supplemental revenue streams and pretty much get them for the most part substantially complete before we come back the week of um, September 21st and begin the actual final field work. We'll be digging and doing all those analytical procedures and substantive procedures that Brian showcased um, a few slides earlier. Uh, we're expecting that by the end of November, we'll be discussing the consolidated financial statement drafts with management, which will then be presented to the audit committee for approval sometime in early November, which is consistent with prior years. Brian, back to you, sir. Thanks, John. We're just wrapping up here uh, with the audit Thanks, committee. Thanks, John. That was a good presentation. I did have a couple of questions. Yes, um, and uh, were you going to continue with this or move on to some of your other services? Uh, no, we, we're going to talk uh, the rest of the presentations. Just a quick uh, discussion of um, COVID-19 and how that might impact what we're doing. Uh, and then some additional um, 
audit standards uh, or accounting standards uh, that we'll talk about that are upcoming for the organization. But Kenny, if you have questions, I think now is a good time to ask. Them. Oh, thank you. And now I, I read this last on, over the weekend, but yes, some of my questions were given the constraints that we have right now about timelines, about the kind of, you know, um, sufficient audit uh, evidence and all of that. So I'll hold till you finish. Sounds good. And we'll just wrap up here. Uh, very shortly. So um, in relation to the pandemic and how that might impact uh, the, the audit, uh, as we talked about, um, you know, there's the, there's the relief and stimulus activity that the health system is going to be part of. Uh, that is going to be part and parcel with our testing, both from a single audit perspective, uh, as well as from a financial statement perspective, revenue recognition, et cetera. So we will we'll be looking closely at that. Those are big dollars. Uh, and, and so that will uh, be woven into our procedures in the current year. Additionally, it's, it's been, as I'm sure everybody can attest to it, an extraordinary uh, year. So a lot of things that we've talked about, it was a great question um, that somebody asked earlier was, hey, do these you know, do you have new areas of emphasis or are these similar? And a lot of the areas of emphasis are similar uh, to what we've seen in the past. We're really looking at um, audit risk and, you know, what determines audit risk is, uh, you know, oftentimes could be the size of a balance. It could be the nature of the estimate uh, and the sensitivity of those involved in the balance. So a lot of times those uh, areas don't change, but certainly what we'll be doing in those areas in the current year, particularly related to the pandemic will change. As John mentioned, uh, there could be AR model changes. Um, you know, we've got the new programs that we mentioned. There might be uh, things in uh, supply chain, distribution, payroll that uh, uh, and personnel that have changed because of the changing environment. Uh, so we'll be looking very closely at that. Um, all of that will be built into uh, the procedures as we kind of divide the audit based on different sections of the financial statement and assess risk there. We are considering how changes may be uh, necessary due to the pandemic. And then next slide real quick. Uh, I think we're into the, um, uh, the accounting update, and I will do this very quickly. You have three significant standards out there that are, are going to impact the organization. Uh, because of the pandemic, GASB has moved the implementation of these standards back, so we won't have any that are being implemented in the current year. Uh, the fiduciary activity uh, one will bring some additional um, pension and post-retirement benefit information into the financial statements. All of that's being audited at this point, so it's just a financial statement presentation item. Uh, the next slide uh, on slide 19 is leases. The lease standard I think will be significant, uh, but that's been pushed off a couple of years now, and that will bring all leases onto your balance sheet. So what you consider to be operating leases, basically kind of rental agreements, now in a couple of years, those will be treated as uh, full leases where you'll have an asset and a liability recognizing uh, the obligation uh, and the right of ownership, uh, really, that you have for uh, those leased assets. And then finally, in a couple of years, when you implement this last standard, uh, the accounting for interest costs has changed significantly. Uh, so to the extent that you have financing uh, out there for capital projects, I don't, don't think you have that right now. 
uh, at least uh, significant uh, and active, but, you know, things like uh, um, uh, ERP implementations um, and uh, other implement, uh, system implementations, if you're talking about EPIC, for example, that would traditionally qualify for interest capitalization. So you'd take your interest expense, roll that in there, and then depreciate that or amortize it over the life of the asset, that will no longer be allowed. So depreciate or interest expense will be recognized when it's incurred as opposed to capitalized into any ongoing asset. But those are a couple of years out. Uh, and as they get closer, we'll go into more detail about how those might impact your financial statements. So I'll pause there and now I'll get back to you, Kinkini, and, and the questions that you have. Uh, the rest is, is kind of shameless self-promotion on Moss Adams. I won't drag you through that. Um, yeah, I, I, I think, you know, some of my questions were just that the principles and points of focus are based on risk and, um, and that given that this is just such a strange year with Epic and with um, COVID and all the new accounts coming in that as for those of us in governance, that we have to oversee effective internal control. So, if and our team is, uh, you know, incredible under uh, Kim Miranda, but we just given all of the um, constraints that even despite folks' uh, best intent, sometimes that uh, if there is uh, the worry for uh, me as a trustee is that is there sufficient audit evidence collected? Are third party uh, uh, folks being uh, contacted and and you know uh, is is there rigor so at any point in time uh, if that is if if there's if you're being hampered in that uh, again not because of uh, stonewalling by our uh, staff just because of the uh, of the different you know balls everyone is juggling do do let us know because uh, sometimes the timeline can uh, make folks rush through processes. So we want to make sure that when we get your audit report, we feel extremely confident in that. Understood. And we will uh, uh, maintain an open dialogue uh, with you on that, both from a project management standpoint, as you mentioned, how are we progressing with the information we're looking for, uh, as well as the results of uh, uh, testing and examination. Great. If, are there any other questions or comments from um, the committee? Yeah, I have sort of a, I guess it's a question. I'd like to encourage you, I guess it's an encouragement. <laughs> I can encourage you to look at um, how we're accounting for um, future recoupments. So we have these Medicare, the way healthcare is structured, I'm sure you know this, you have potential of having to pay back um, waivers and so, such in the, in the future. And it's come to my knowledge that uh, recently that because of our structure in relationship to the county, we don't keep those, uh, we don't have enough cash to keep those on our books. The county doesn't keep them on their books. And then you get into a, so I'd like you to look at that and, and make a recommendation to us uh, as you're, um, going through this, I don't know if there's a better model for how to to account for you know major future recruitment recruitments that are 
gonna, they're liabilities, basically, and, I, yeah. and I'm sure why they're not sitting on someone's books. Well, we that's a, a critical part of uh, you know the revenue cycle, and, and it's a common part of some of the programs that you have, where you you have uh, potential clawbacks or recruitment uh, recruitment uh, you know retrospective uh, to the service period. So we're always looking at that. Uh, you do have um, a, ton, a ton of those on your records, uh, but we will dig in closer. The key the key with those is not necessarily you know one is have you recorded what you have appropriately? Right. We're also looking at completeness. Have you completely recognized all the obligations that you have? And that's really one of the, the major audit risks when you're talking about a balance like that. Uh, so we will look closely at that and, and make a note. I can see John making notes here uh, to come back to you um, at our closing meeting and describe what you have, what the appropriate treatment is, and what we did to test that. Okay, great. Thank you. Thank you, Lewis. That was a good comment. Yeah, can I can I just uh, append it just a little bit, uh, uh, Brian, just to make sure that uh, uh, there's a, alignment uh, there. Though I think that um, I think that what uh, uh, Trustee Sequin is saying is um, um, where you'd be looking at uh, completeness and whether we've recorded. Um, uh, the right amount in the right years and things like that in terms of you know, the money we receive and the, the outstanding liability. The issue is if we have a balance sheet that has that liability, but we don't have any sort of reserve um, to account for that, uh, that, that uh, liability and when it, comes, uh, when it may or may not come due, that's where the disconnect is. And I don't, I don't know if your audit will, will, will speak to that in the way that he's, he's He's asking, so I'm wondering if you could kind of clarify that a bit more, just to um, speak to what your your understanding of that would would be for us. Could, could I could I uh, double back and make a comment here before you go? There is uh, actually it is it is addressed. It was addressed in the last audit as part of uh, footnote number eight. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, but the the issue is that just talked about our net negative balance and that we had a you know, what we, what our balance was at June 30th with the, with the county. And then in footnote number five, where it has, you know, due, due to and from parties, it actually shows the detail of what, what our long-term liabilities are, but it does, they, they really don't wrap together. And we find that when we have our discussions with the county, it becomes convoluted. And, uh, uh, and I think it, uh, and I think if you, speak with management, you know, when you go through the process, when you're speaking with Kim, she can take you through kind of the current challenges we have with our net negative balance. Um, what we're finding is we have a lot of uh, uh, audit settlements and so forth that are due in the coming year. And under our current uh, arrangement with the county, we don't have a capacity to pay those when they come due. And it's something that, uh, and it obviously changes over time as our if our cash flow gets better or something gets pushed out, it you know it kind of changes when when we need to work with the auditor on it. But the, it's real obvious to us that we're going to have a point in the near future where we're going to be over the uh, maximum uh, uh, cash balance that's available to us. And uh, Moss Adams should probably be aware of this because they audited us last year. Yeah, yeah. Um, and this isn't a new situation. It's just right. that, yeah. Yeah. No idea. Oh, yeah. sorry. Go ahead. So, yeah, so I, what I'm, I, yeah, I was just going to say, 
if there if there could be a little bit more discussion in the in footnote eight about the fact that we're getting close to our balance and actually have you sit down with Kim and Del Vecchio and they could give you a you know a sense of where it's going and uh, what we're trying to do is uh, bring to the readers' attention that it's something that needs to be addressed in the near future. Yeah, sure. Well, that half of my question is. Is there a better way of doing it? Um, I, I think that's a good practical suggestion, but is there even farther than that? You know, we have to account for our pensions now, our, our obligations in the future uh, regarding our pension programs. Is there, I know that doesn't sound like there's a requirement that we do that, but is there a best practice around this sort of liability that uh, is, is looming in the future? What yeah, so, yeah, there, there'll be... Um, uh, uh, accounting standards and financial reporting standards, which uh, guide how you present that in your financial statements. And that's part and parcel uh, to what we're doing from an audit perspective is to make sure that those financial statements are fairly stated. Part of evaluating the uh, fairness of financial statements is um, evaluating going concern. Uh, you know, financial statements are prepared under the concept that you're going to continue as a going concern. You're going to meet obligations as they come due. Uh, so we'll be looking at that as well. And if there's substantial doubt about that, that kind of uh, feeds into some additional reporting uh, requirements. So that will be covered in our financial statement audit. And we'll be able to discuss that with you. We could share suggestions of if there's more than, uh, you know, one right answer, what you've you know, what you've selected to do from a presentation standpoint, what the option might be, we can cover that as well. Unfortunately, uh, what's out of scope is uh, the strategy, et cetera, for how you develop the revenues and the funds uh, to pay for um, the obligations that you have and, and well, the challenges. All that for us. So I, I, I wish I wish that was part of uh, what we gave you in the report was the uh, the silver bullet for that. Um, but the, the presentation of the audit uh, will cover those kinds of things, uh, Lewis and Ross, that you guys talked about. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I, I, I think, thank you for that. I think the, the, the scope would be to basically point out that it's there, uh, but, but beyond that, to say what do you do about it and how do you address the fact that you don't have reserves or you don't have a you know, really uh, strong balance sheet is really more, I mean, they can just reflect what your balance sheet is. What you're going to do about it is really more... Uh, your your business for the most part so thank you for clarifying that because I, I i i think all the trustees are are very much acutely aware of it and sensitive to it as we are and i just want to make sure that we're clear on what we can expect as a by a product of the uh the, the work effort understood thanks well if there uh so that uh concludes our prepared remarks if there are uh, I'll ask if there are any other questions related to what we talked about. Maybe more importantly, if uh, we didn't address something that, that you wanted to hear about. Not from me. Not Thank you for the but, presentation. Yeah, I appreciate uh, your time this evening. We're looking forward to the engagement and communicating with you about the engagement. Rick, I don't know if you have any other items on the agenda. I'll just turn it back over to you. Okay, um, I do. Thank and, you. Uh, yeah, we wish you a good evening, and we'll talk soon. Okay, thanks. Thank you. Bye-bye now.
Okay. Can I take the screen over again? Nope. Okay. Can you see my screen? Yep. Yes. Okay. I'm almost done here. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> so I'm going to talk about the uh, audits that I've finished this year or since the last meeting and then talk about uh, some of the other reports and wrap things up. So uh, we've talked about 340B audits before. Uh, we were doing monthly audits because we had some significant issues with our uh, 340B claims. Uh, we got it worked down to a 0% uh, error rate in the Sorian environment, and then we implemented EPIC. And now you've got multiple areas involved in doing 340B processing. And so there's more ways that things can go wrong. Uh, so we did the Medi-Cal audit, and as you can see here, uh, when we did the audit in January, we had a 5% error rate. Uh, when we did it in April, we had a 0.87% error rate. So it's going in the right direction, but not perfect yet. And the reason that why, why we're continuing to do these audits is because we're looking at everything that's been processed. It's 100% audit. We look at every item that's gone out that's a 340B drug, see if it uh, was processed correctly, then notify the revenue cycle people if it's not, so that we can fix it going forward and reprocess things uh, for the ones that we messed up on. Okay, so that's going in the right direction. Uh, we split out freestanding uh, ambulatory claims because that's a whole different area that's doing the processing and maintaining the, the CDM files so that we get correct processing. And when we looked at them by themselves, we had a 16.42% error rate. Now, that's not that bad because they have limited number of 340B drugs, but it's way too high. We need to get those things fixed. We want everyone to be doing it properly. So, uh, Rick, I don't want to uh, take us down a rabbit hole, but how does it not have the UD? Is it because a different quantity of drug comes on and they don't catch it, or how? How you? Know, what What happens to? They process it differently. It's a whole team. Uh, so, the problem is pharmacy determines what's 340B. They notify Revenue Integrity, who puts it in the CDM. They notify Epic Willow, who puts it in the Willow, in the Epic system for uh, your acute setting. But then you have to notify Ambulatory. They have their own pharmacy people and their own process for determining what their CDM shows, and they don't do as good a job. So, so 
is there's a 340B oversight committee, right? Yes. So those kinds of like process things are not, haven't been still we, hashed up? We talk about these audit results at every meeting. Uh, we talk about corrective action. Uh, this is newer this time because we hadn't split out ambulatory and done a focused review of them. We only had a few uh, items processed in the January audit. Uh, so we didn't see how bad the problem was. Now we've gone back and worked with that team to make sure we get the modifiers put in place and establish a better process for keeping the system updated. Okay. Uh, so we also did the audit of Medicare 340B because they have different rules on how they process, uh, you know, what's considered 340B for Medicare and how they want a JG modifier instead of a UD. And, you know, uh, again, we've done very well on this. Uh, the January audit, we had a 0.3% error rate. In April, we had 0%. So we were like, yes, this is good. We always like to see it that way. Rick, this is Tracy. How, yeah. how, how bad has it, not bad, but what has been the, the um, someone can comment in the last, say, three years, what's been the highest error rate for 340B? 100%. With the UD. In 2018. Wow. That was the error rate. Uh, so we, every claim you looked at was incorrect? We had some issues. They made a change in this uh, Sorian system, and they changed the mapping of the modifiers. And so while we had a UD modifier on every drug, it wasn't being picked up on the bill because of the change in the system. And so every claim that went out went out incorrectly. I, I think, you know, I, I said this during the board retreat too, and sometimes I just wonder, like I've been on the audit committee now for four years, is that sometimes folks feel that it's the auditor's job to come in and fix or even determine or discern where things are going wrong, or it's the chief quality team's job to come and see where equipment is not being cleaned or sterilized or washed. And it is not your job and it is not their job. It is the job of the people who handle the department to make sure that, hey, let's audit ourselves and catch this mistake, whether it's, you know, in that. So because you're a three-member team or a four-member team and you're going over the facilities and ambulatory, the onus should be on the folks who are doing this work to be self-auditing, to be doing all of that. So when you guys swoop in, you see everything is working right or you catch something here and there which is out of the ordinary. But on a regular basis to kind of, I, I hope, I'm, I, I, it's, but it almost seems like people fall back and say, hey, this job is the auditor's job to come it's in and see job, what we yes. do. <laughs> I, I'm trying to get out of that. I've been trying to uh, get pharmacy more involved and get the operations people more involved in this so that they do some policing of themselves. But 
I still want to provide some oversight to make sure that they're not missing something. Of course. Uh, it's actually a very complicated process and you, ha you have to be very knowledgeable to really do the audit from end to end. Yes, sir, Rick, I, I would love if you could speak to that. Do you, do you, is it your impression that people aren't um, in the operating realm, aren't actually uh, uh, reviewing these things themselves and just waiting for you to come and check it? I think that people are reviewing their piece, but then once it leaves their area, it's somebody else's responsibility. Uh, so, for instance, the CDM people, Correct. They they knew they had the modifier in place. They didn't worry about it because uh, it's always built correctly before. But now all of a sudden, IT made a change, and they weren't picking it up anymore. And unless somebody looks at the bill going out the door and say, wait a minute, that one's supposed to have a modifier, you don't know. And then we saw that, and then we went, that's weird. And then we looked at another and another and we're like, oh my gosh. Then we had to get a work group together and say, what's going on here? And then we f realized that the system change changed the mapping. Right, I, I just, oh, I just, sorry, Delvecchia. Sorry, I, I just want to say, I, 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 um, I want to make sure the trustee manager knows that like whether it's in uh, uh, audit or in um, uh, quality, that, that that mentality and that mindset is permeating in the organization. Uh, there are systemic things uh, that don't lend themselves to that being a routine practice uh, to look end-to-end -end for certain parts of the operations. Right. So that these these sorts of systems are uh, that, that Rick and others have are sort of designed to do just that, to come in and occasionally uh, do the, the, the sort of end-to-end -end check to see if something in some subset where people are checking and seeing if they're doing something right may look right from that lens, but uh, doing it across the board is is not routinely a part of what they would do. And so uh, this sort of helps with that. It is not the all end all of it, but it is, it's sort of a natural part of the process uh, combined with the fact that we do need people to make sure that there's auditing of their own workflows and uh, the ability to say that that work is happening in a reliable way. It, it doesn't obviate the need to continue to grow. These processes help to facilitate that. Right, right, right. So, uh, so actually, building that internal muscle is what I, I, I'm yeah. saying. That. Yeah, I think, and your point is well taken. I, I want to make sure we're we're communicating that we are doing that and we're still working to improve that. Yep. So okay, the oversight so, committee, do they, uh, do they have uh, work plans where people are accountable for... Uh, developing these procedures and writing them and abiding by them before you audit? Mm, I don't think so. Uh, I think it's more of we have a set of procedures that each area follows to audit certain aspects of the processing and report out at the work group. And then if they have errors, then there's follow-up by uh, the director of pharmacy to make sure that they get these uh, processing issues fixed. Okay. It just occurs to me that um, we talk about 340B because it's such a um, 
it's such a big penalty if we don't bill for it and such a um, strong revenue stream if we if we get it right. But um, what about other qualifiers on on bills and invoices? I mean, what are we if, if this big one is being just now addressed? What else is being missed? What else are, could we be doing? I'm it, I'm thinking um, just right now of COVID-19 funding. There's lots of pots of money through um, the county, the state sending money to the county that may be coming to AHS. There's money from the federal government. Isn't there um, requirements to to effectively account for whatever services are being provided for COVID-19 in all ways? And, and so, uh, you know, just to ensure that Rick, that you and your staff don't have to look back in a month or two every time some um, invoice gets sent to the state or federal or local government for, for funding. Yeah, so actually Kim has a work group that's addressing a lot of those issues and <clears throat> accounting for the different expenses relating to COVID. Uh, and I've been involved in uh, the billing for the telehealth claims to make sure that we were processing those correctly and then talking with what we're going to do post-COVID for telehealth and trying to make sure that we have the appropriate action set up and uh, so that when they announce that shelter-in-place is no longer needed, that what do we do from a telehealth standpoint? Do we have uh, providers credentialed and privileged to do telehealth? Have we worked with the payers to make sure we know who's going to pay those claims because uh, I don't want to do a bunch of telehealth claims if we're not going to get paid for them. Or at least I don't want the organization. I'm not doing any of those. <laughs> Thank you. No, that, that answers my question. Okay. So getting back to the 340B, we did the Medicare and freestanding and again, a 4.6% error rate, but very small volume of claims. And we're working with the appropriate areas to fix the system going forward and have the claims rebuild so that we don't face any penalties. Uh, right now, we're working on the uh, issue from the last audits that we did. Uh, we got a file from the state. We calculated our liability to be basically $2.1 million involving 84 manufacturers. Uh, part of the program is that we are responsible for making those manufacturers whole. And so I have reached out to all 84 of them. And at the time I posted this, I had resolved three of them for about $5.50 out of the 2.1 million. Uh, all, the, all the big hitters approached me immediately, uh, but now I'm up to, uh, I'm negotiating with 19 and it's about $400,000 out of the 2.1. And I'm trying to get them to let us uh, buy at WAC going forward until we uh, get this issue taken care of or some other way of, of resolving it versus paying them money. But most of them want the money so far. 
but I figure this is going to go on for the next six months before we get anything really resolved on it. Okay, so that was all the audits. Uh, I wanted to point out this about compliance. Uh, so I've got the compliance dashboard and 87 new cases this quarter. So that's almost one a day. Uh, it's continuing to increase. And even though I had a record 93 closed during the period, it barely made a dent in the overall outstanding issues that we have. Uh, the 133, but only two of those were reportable uh, issues to the government. Uh, we had two privacy cases that we had to report, but we're kind of running neck and neck between privacy and HR cases. Uh, and of course, HR ones, I defer to HR to do the investigation. And those are, you know, anything from uh, retaliation, hostile work environment, or uh, Johnny looked at me funny. And it's like, how do you deal with that? Uh, so some duplication in reporting, but uh, probably no more than 10%. Sometimes people uh, report once a week, hoping that if they report often enough, we're really gonna do something. Uh, unfortunately, if it's, Short of termination, they usually won't find out what we did as a result because you're not going to air that dirty laundry. You take action, uh, and it might be a behavior thing. It might be uh, a change in workflow, but uh, a lot of times the person that does the reporting doesn't see it. Okay, so this is the three-year graph. Uh, showing the case trend, and it's pretty steadily increasing uh, both in reports and outstanding issues. Uh, it's just some of them are taking longer. Some, some cases you can close in a day. Some cases are going to take weeks. Just depends on what the issue is. Okay, and as far as other reports are concerned, can I uh, I'm, I have a question. So, uh, Delica, some of these things like with AIM or OK using the facilities or like some things with their contracting, are, like, are some of these, because I remember these things coming up like a year, year and a half ago too. So when, as we are signing our contract with O'Care and kind of integrating or whatever is happening, like do some of these audit issues like that they've, that, you know, the, the violations and things come up in the negotiation, uh, contract negotiations and other writers or provisions put into the contract that they don't repeat these things? Uh, so I think it varies, but to be clear with, with OKR, um, there's been a lot of work to resolve outstanding issues with them because, you know, there's no new contract. The contract with OKR is ending uh, at the end of June. It's moving into AHP. Uh, and, 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 and with the others, um, I don't know if there's riders per se to have to speak to. It's part, I, I think it varies by entity, but... Uh, my guess would be that as the uh, issues are being resolved and they are 
they are uh, corrected in the moment because there are violations of the contract. And so bringing them up in the contract wouldn't, uh, there's already the provisions in the contract that any breaches can get resolved in this way. So I don't know that we would view it as like something that we needed to specifically address in the contract if we were able, unless it was something that we were unable to address and we needed to create the provision for us to be able to address it going forward. But I think in general, it would just be understood that we have mechanisms in the contract already that allow us to deal with issues as they arise. Okay, thank you. Sure. Okay, uh, so as far as my audit plan, uh, it's pretty much on time. Uh, I've got several audits in process that will be wrapped up in the next month. Uh, I did lose an internal audit uh, position this year. Uh, the person retired in November and we kind of stalled because of the holidays on recruiting and then COVID-19 came and we didn't want to hire somebody uh, by Zoom. Uh, so we're expecting as soon as we get back to the office to start recruiting for that position. Uh, and we acquired the uh, person that coordinates the uh, IRB, which is our institutional review board. Uh, because there's a lot of compliance components there. And the month after she joined our staff, she quit. And so we had to hire a new person to replace her. And so we've gone through some growing pains on that. But uh, things are pretty much on time. Uh, Follow-up issues have gone down from 21 to 11 open issues. Uh, there's a few that are relating to HIPAA walkthrough assessments. I have not followed up on because I didn't want to be wandering around the clinical areas during the middle of the pandemic, uh, but they will be followed shortly. And that was my written report. The other thing we've talked about the risk assessment before, uh, If you saw that in the package, we had 213 risk areas. I did the evaluation as I've done in the past based on uh, the regulatory concerns, the volume, uh, the impact, uh, quantified each one, came up with my risk rankings, uh, shared those with uh, our executive team and Kim was the big, big winner on that since I'm doing a number of revenue cycle reviews this year. Uh, but we're, we're trying to help and move things along and it seems like revenue is uh, one of our biggest problems right now. So anything that we can do there uh, should benefit the organization. Uh, dialing for dollars. So do you have any questions? I, I laid out what the different things are. I'm going to be doing a lot. Uh, so this revenue cycle work group that meets twice a week, uh, I've been in attendance at a lot of those and uh, looking at a lot of the issues and bringing up additional ones. If I see a revenue cycle issue, 
on having it put on their tractor sheet to make sure we don't lose sight of it and we get something corrected. Uh, we have been involved in a number of the things. We're working closely with uh, revenue integrity uh, and coding, make sure that we're doing things uh, appropriately there. And uh, we'll probably be getting involved in some of the work queues to see if we can help uh, identify some of the issues and how to clear out uh, quantities of items. Uh, uh, we'll be looking at denial management later in the year after Kim's had a chance to uh, go through some of that stuff and tweak it. And dental billing, just because it's been a paper process until recently, and I want to make sure that we've done things uh, appropriately there. And the tracking of age claims, uh, again, that's one of the issues that we have. You know, do you work the dollars or do you work the old claims? And I think it's a combination, but we just need to make sure we have mechanisms in place to identify them and don't lose claims because they uh, time out. Okay. Uh, I believe that you saw my audit plan in the package. And I have it here. Do I need to bring that? Because we do need to talk about that if, if that's okay or not. Rick, that was that um, Excel chart, the internal audit and compliance schedule, risk assessment. Yeah. Uh, not the risk assessment, the audit, FY21 audit plan. And that's on page 58, I think, 56. I've got it. I've got it up yeah, now. This one. Okay. So that's my proposed plan for the year. Right. And again, I'm going to continue to do the 340B uh, audits just to make sure we don't slip there. Uh, and we we did have some discussion, uh, Del Vecchio, that it was going away in January, but not fee-for-service. That's only for uh, managed care is going away. So we need to continue doing that. It just will be lesser. So any questions about the plan? Just one for me. On the charge reconciliation, I know there's lots and lots of departments. Um, I, I, and you know this, my um, interim revenue integrity person is starting and we know that we have a, a void in written procedures and probably even avoid in identified staff that need to be doing reconciliations. Um, and I've got that person starting here at the end of the month. Right. Um, so will you, uh, is the plan to just start at one department and then just do one by one all year long or what? So right now, Gordon is working with Pam on developing the uh, procedures 
and helping her roll those out. And then for next year, we will be looking department by department and we will try to be hitting the, the higher volume departments to see what they're doing, if they're doing anything. And uh, we're gonna do that in conjunction with uh, revenue integrity's efforts to make sure that we're not both, uh, we're not overlapping work. But I just think we need more hands on this. Uh, yeah. Christian had started this, you know, before he left and then it just kind of dropped. So we need to make sure that the word gets out there. People were, I'm worried that there are charges that are not being captured. And so I want to do what we can to make sure that. Yeah, no, I, I I agree. We know this. We we are we spoke about it earlier earlier at the finance committee already, actually. So, yeah. So, um, Rick, do you have enough staff to do all these projects starting in a month? Wait, one, two, three, four, five projects starting in a few weeks, along with all the other COVID nineteen and everything that's going on do what's on this plan. Oh, can you hear me? Yes, Rick. Oh, because I'm showing something since I'm muted. <laughs> yes, I have enough to do what's on this plan. If you want me to do more, then that would be a problem. Uh, but once I hire the new person, then I would be able to uh, potentially either add something to this list or uh, put them on charge reconciliation projects to make sure that we get more coverage. Great, thanks. Okay. So can I get somebody to approve? Right, we're on the next item on the agenda now. Yeah, I, I move that we uh, approve the 2021 audit um, plan and schedule. Lewis or Ross? I'll second. Great, and no disagreement with that? The motion passes? Aye. Yeah, yeah, Trust, trustee Jensen, you actually have to, you know, request a vote of Sorry. the members and if it's unanimous and you don't have to go through a roll call. Um, okay, uh, then all, uh, all in favor of that motion? Aye. Aye. Motion passes. And now we're on item E, I think. That, that was all that I had. Uh, the only other thing would be the tracker. Uh-huh. And I had actually put, the only thing I remember being on there was uh, that I was going to do your orientation and that was done. Okay, well, we're moving along very well then and you're doing a great job as always. So are there any um, questions or concerns or um, updates from committee members or staff? Not for me. No, not here. Um, so then the last thing I'll just say is that we will 
take a look again. Um, I'll work with Rana and Rick and um, and do another poll and see if we can have this meeting at a different time so that it's not 8.30. And I see I see you yawning, Govecchio, by the way. <laughs> and, <Sorry>. uh, yeah. <laughs> <All day. laughs> and, and so Mike doesn't get, have to tell me how to do a motion, you know, if it's not eight after eight o'clock at night. <laughs> Thanks, everyone. Thanks. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Good night. Good night. Good night.